0: Season 1 of Written in Stone, the 1990s, is supported by Tension Climbing, wooden training tools designed with purpose in Denver, Colorado. Use the code STONE, that's S-T-O-N-E, to get 10% off of your next purchase at tensionclimbing.com and to let them know that their support for this show matters. Not valid for tension board sets, hardware, or gift cards. Cannot be combined with other offers. Tensionclimbing.com Mastery over success. Written in Stone is co-created by Power Company Climbing. Products, training plans, and education to help you become a better climber. PowerCompanyClimbing.com. Use the code STONE, that's S-T-O-N-E, for 20% off of almost everything. Learn. Grow. Excel. Every generation of athletes believes they've seen the limits of human performance. Nobody will ever be better than we are right now. No way. Scientists claimed the four minute mile wasn't even possible. Roger Bannister didn't listen. Long jump 29 feet, never gonna happen. Have you even heard of physics? Bob Beeman didn't listen. Score 100 points in a single game, preposterous. Wilt Chamberlain didn't listen. And so when a French superstar climber made a claim about what women climbers would be capable of, or more precisely what they wouldn't be capable of, Lynn Hill didn't listen. I'm Chris Hampton, you're listening to Written in Stone, climbing's most important ascents. This is Season 1, the 1990s. in Motor City, Detroit, Michigan in 1961, the fifth of seven children, Scrappy was in Lynn Hill's DNA. She'd always been called a tomboy, in no small part due to the fact that she spent her time climbing trees and streetlights, and even though she excelled at gymnastics, she disliked the way the girls, and I quote, had to smile and do cutesy little routines on the floor. She questioned the structure of chores at home, believing it unfair to she and her sister. Why did they have daily chores, but the boys only had weekly chores? Sure, the feminist movement was in full swing, but still, it seemed like the whole world believed women couldn't do what men did. That they shouldn't do what men did. By 1975, the Hill family had moved to California, and Lynn's older sister, Kathy, was engaged to be married. Her fiancé, Chuck, was a rock climber and took Kathy and 14-year-old Lynn along on a climbing trip. This doesn't seem that hard, Lynn thought. In fact, this is pretty easy. I'd like to try leading. Sensing a potential regular climbing partner in the making, Chuck was all for it. But people don't lead on their first day. Everyone knows that. Stick to top roping for a while until you get good enough. Lynn Hill didn't listen. It didn't take long for Lynn to push the difficulty of her climbing toward the top of the grading scale. And even after she took two of the strongholds of American climbing, Yosemite Valley, and New York's gunks by storm, making a name for herself and dancing up every traditional route in sight, whether a man had done it or not, she wasn't done not listening. December, 1986, Denver, Colorado. The Great Debate, a meeting set up by the American Alpine Club that essentially pitted traditionalist climbers against the futuristic thinking of a new generation. Situated squarely on the chopping block was bolting on rappel and the new practice of hangdogging, hanging on a rope to work moves. Basically, good tactics. But before this, it had been frowned upon, didn't count. You had to start from the bottom every time, and as soon as you fell off, lower off. No touching those next holds until you got there on the sharp end. In front of a live audience of over 400 people, Lynn took her seat at the table alongside some of the greatest climbers in the sport. On the traditional side were stone masters, Ron Kalk and John Backer, as well as the previous generation's de facto leader, Hot Henry Barber. Spearheading the charge for the liker clad hangdogs was the boisterous Todd Skinner, the calm, cool, and elegantly collected Alan Watts, and the young, brash, new age, outspoken Christian Griffith. And Lynn was supposed to be on the side of the traditionalists. Their ace. But when confronted by the moderator, Jim McCarthy, president of the Alpine Club, himself a traditionalist, she was asked to explain her style on a notorious former Gunks project called Vandals. Former, Because in 1984, Lynn had been on the first ascent team of the difficult roof, which was, at 513, the hardest route east of the mighty Mississippi and had rejected all attempts until Lynn had done the unthinkable. She was an ace, all right. Just not for the traditionalists. So standing there, in front of the climbing Illuminati, she responds... I simply hung on the rope to check out a hidden hold in the roof after I'd fallen. I didn't feel like repeating all the moves up to that point. Christian Griffith must have LOL'd long before LOLing was a thing. Todd Skinner, proudly wearing the crown of the hangdogs, surely had that gigantic, shit-eating grin on full display. No big deal. Yeah, I'm a tomboy and a hangdog, so what? It was simple. Lynn was climbing circles around these American traddies. They were standing still, mired deep in their own muck, held back by history. And from their perspective, she just wasn't listening. But she wasn't there to listen. She was there to make her own history. But Europe, that's where it's at. The climbers in Europe, they were moving forward. That's where she needed to be. That was the launch pad, and ironically, the American Alpine Club agreed. Maybe in a case of "Can't Beat 'em, Join 'em," they footed the bill for Lynn to go check out what was really going on. And that's because they had this whole new thing in Europe, sport climbing. It embraced all of the new age ideas, climbing for the sake of climbing, not bogged down by the ethics and outdated ideas of the traditionalists. And what's more, there was competition money to be had. Lynn was no stranger to competing. In order to fund her climbing addiction, she had competed for four years on the TV show, Survival of the Fittest, winning all four seasons. She had boxed in Las Vegas bars for prize money to support the next adventure. In this new all climbing competition series, it wasn't going to be any different. Calmly and gracefully, like she always climbed, Lynn crushed everyone. At her first big event in Arco, Italy, she had no idea what the rules even were. It didn't seem like anyone knew. Who even cares what the rules are? I'll just send everything. That's what matters. And then there she was, in the finals of her first major climbing competition, facing the French superstar Catherine Destivelle. In typical fashion. Lynn slowly and methodically made her way to the top of the finals route. But in not so typical fashion, Destivelle fell. This is how it's supposed to go, she thought. I climb my best, I send, I win. But in these, the first big competitions in sport climbing, the judges had decided that speed mattered maybe more than sending. And Destavel knew it, but Lynn didn't. So in what seemed like a change to the rules, mid-finals, maybe because they couldn't stomach the thought of the American winning, the competition organizers crowned Destavel the champion. It's like they had a statement to make. But Lynn Hill, she didn't listen. with a better understanding of the rules or the malleable nature of them, she decisively won the next event. And the next, and the next. She was getting stronger, better, more confident. And so, at the end of the 1980s, when arrogant French climber Jean-Baptiste Treboux, who couldn't match Lynn's competition record, opened his mouth and made the ridiculous statement that he can't shake to this day, no woman will ever climb 514. Lynn Hill listened. She'd been listening all along. Every time a man opened his stupid mouth to tell her she couldn't do something, she listened. It's not for girls. She listened. Women just don't do this. She listened. No hangdogging. She listened. She just went the other way. Her way. Her story. Now, I don't know if Jibé Trebou regrets what he said. Maybe he does, maybe not. He claims that he only said it to spur Lin on and that he always considered her the best climber of that generation. But that just doesn't really matter. What matters is what came next. And that was Critical Mass. We'll be right back. All right, let's face it. Those climbers in the 90s, 30 years ago, had stronger fingers than most of us. And that's because they spent a lot of time hanging on small wooden edges. And you can too. Tension Climbing has a full line of hangboards and finger strength tools designed with purpose to help you train for your goals. My personal favorites are the honestone and the whetstone for hanging and the block for lifting and warming up my fingers at the crag. The honestone and the whetstone cover everything you need in your home setup for people of different levels, one-arm or two-arm training, big edges, small edges, pockets, and slopers. And no matter what you're climbing on at the crag, the block will get you ready. If you go to tensionclimbing.com and use the code STONE at checkout, you'll get 10% off, and you'll also let them know how much you appreciate them supporting this podcast, climbing history, and this community. That's STONE, S-T-O-N-E, all lowercase, or all caps if you feel like shouting it out. Doesn't really matter how you do it, just do it. Carolyn Marie Hill was 12 years old on Thursday, September 20th, 1973, when her family sat down to watch what was being called the Battle of the Sexes. Tennis player Bobby Riggs had been taunting female players. to bomb Billie Jean King you in really this do. match and set back uh, women's lib movement about another 20 years. And Billie Jean King had answered the call. Billy Jean is killing him with that overhand smash. I'll tell you that, Jean. He's fighting for his tennis life now. At the Houston Astrodome, in front of a crowd of over 30,000 people and over 90 million tuning in on their television sets worldwide, King trounced Riggs in straight sets, winning $100,000 and changing the conversation about women in sports forever. Lynn Hill listened. But this, this right now, this was the dawn of the 1990s. Daughters of the second wave of feminism were coming of age and taking advantage of opportunities their mothers didn't have access to. Independence and identities that weren't defined by their husbands and children. Billboard charts were alive with Paula Abdul, Janet Jackson, and Sinead O'Connor. A few years earlier, Sally Ride had become the first woman in space, and Geraldine Ferraro had become a vice presidential candidate. Women were making moves, taking their rightful place. And so, Turning 29 on the third day of January, 1990, Lynn Hill knew what she had to do. She had to make Trebou eat his words in front of everybody, on his turf. She had to go to an important French crag, one that was integral to the progression of the sport, a proving ground where Trebou had made his own mark. She went to Semai. Just two years earlier, Tribu had done battle with a technical power endurance test piece at semi and upon completion of the first ascent had given it the name Mass Critique or Critical Mass. Critical Mass is defined as the minimum amount of material required to maintain a nuclear chain reaction. And Tribu had given it the grade of 8B plus, or 14A. And he felt that no woman had the critical mass required to clip those chains. Typical. <laughs> so Lynn Hill dropped her rope beneath Mass Critique. Wordlessly and without looking up, She adjusted her bright yellow chalk bag and tied into her neon pink Petzl harness, taking extra care to finish her knot. A year earlier, in the nearby pocket-pulling crag of Bukes, she hadn't been so diligent. She'd lost her focus while talking to another climber, and upon taking at the anchors of her warm-up, didn't feel that expected tug on her harness. And then she was Falling. The gymnastic training took over, and Lynn windmilled her arms to get upright. She crashed through the limbs of a tree, slowing her just enough to avoid certain death. And Lynn Hill bounced off the ground, was knocked unconscious, and laid motionless between two boulders. She had broken a foot and dislocated an elbow, but thanks to that tree and her cat-like reflexes, she was alive. And Lynn was robust, physically and mentally. Shaken, sure, but not stopped. Six weeks later, she was back on the rock, and now, nearly a year after that could have been much more costly mistake, here she was, standing beneath the hardest climb she'd ever tried ready to set off a nuclear chain reaction. It wasn't going to be easy. This was no overgraded ego stroking gimme. It was hard, really hard. But Lynn Hill was an athlete, one of the best in any sport. She understood competition. She understood battle. And she was going to have to fight. And this came as no surprise. Tribu may have been sexist, but he was strong. Four years earlier, he'd brought his European ethics to Smith Rocks and scooped the Americans by sending to bolt or not to beat, the first 514 in the US. And this fact didn't escape Lynn's thoughts, though she couldn't be focused on that right now. She had bigger things to do. Taking a deep breath, She pulled her five-foot, one-inch, 100-pound frame onto the wall. She floated upward, passing one difficult move after another, the blue and gold limestone dropping away beneath her. Fierce. Determined. She wasn't climbing alone. She was climbing on the shoulders of Bev Johnson and Maria Craner, alongside Alison Osius, Mari Gingery and Robin Urbisfield. And on her back, she carried the future of the climbing community. At a rest stance, she let her mind wander. She remembered that day in Joshua Tree when she was a new climber, just 14 years old, and a male climber approached her, incredulous that she had just topped a boulder he couldn't. Sure, she must have somehow cheated. She considered again the stupidity of Treboux's statement. No No woman woman will will ever, ever climb climb 514. She knew this was her ninth day working on the route and that Tribou had taken more days to do it. But she couldn't have known that if she succeeded today, it would mean that in 25 or 30 years, when young women would search the internet for stories of the legendary female climber who busted through barriers placed by ignorant men, that Jean-Baptiste Tribou's name would be reduced to a mere footnote in the history of mass critique. Replaced instead by the name Lynn Hill. Lynn Hill a Lynn nuclear Hill, chain reaction. She couldn't have known that. Could she? And so Lynn Hill cleared her mind once more. Focused on the next powerful series of slopy edges and tiny slippery feet. And set off toward inevitable critical mass. <laughs> One, two, three. Written in Stone is produced by me, Chris Hampton, with help from Riley Rush and Emily Holland for Plug Tone Audio, a group of the best, most impactful podcasts in the outdoor industry. At the link in your show notes, you'll find all the things you expect and probably some you don't. And look, this show is 100% rooted in the facts. But like Todd Skinner always said, never let the truth get in the way of a good story. If you love what you're hearing, give us those five stars and a glowing review and tell everyone you know at the crag, at the gym, follow the pod on your friends' phones and share it all over your social medias and together we can tell the stories of climbing's most important ascents one decade at a time. this thing still on oh hey everybody it's chris uh if you're still listening thank you huge thank you um it's hard to believe that this thing is finally out into the world and that you're hearing it and i could not be more excited for it um I think maybe we'll call this because I, I really want to talk to you guys without a script and without a, without scoring and all of that uh, for just a just a minute or two. And so maybe this is the the written in stone club or the the secret stoners club. That's what it is. It's the secret stoners club, and the first rule of secret stoners club is you do talk about Secret Stoners Club. In fact, you tell all of your friends about Secret Stoners Club. Um, But the second rule is that you don't have to be a stoner to join the Secret Stoners Club, though once you join, you are a stoner, if that makes any sense. Um, But I guess there's really no sense in being in a club if you don't get some sort of Benefit from being in a club. So what are what are the benefits here to the secret stoners club? Um, number one, I'll tell you what's coming next, uh, who we're going to be hearing about or who we're going to be hearing from Um and for me, this is the most exciting part as, I, as I've been making this season and researching tons and tons of research along with uh, Riley Rush, who helped me write some of these episodes and is doing a lot of the research here. Uh, what we found is that the context of how, how there's all this interplay between the athletes and um, the legacy of their ascents and how that inspires the next ascent and and informs how the next climbers approach uh, their ascents. It's, it's fascinating and it's lovely and it's fun and I'm so excited for you to hear it. Anyway, that's only one of the benefits. I also think that um, I'll give you some updates on on new people that are being brought into conversation. And we've got some bonus episodes coming this season. Uh, you, Secret Stoners, will be the first to hear about who those bonus episodes are with or what they're about. And they are fascinating. Um, also, if Emily will let me, Emily is um, doing, she keeps the the wheels turning over here. Uh, she does all of the brand outreach. and. Um, Keeps things organized and if she will let me do a giveaway just to the secret stoners, uh, we'll be doing that. So your chances go up dramatically if you're a part of this exclusive secret club we've got here. So stay tuned for that. Anyway, coming up next is a conversation with Katie Brown and it's right there in your feed right now, this very second and honestly, I fanboy through most of the episode, even though I've known Katie for a long, long time, I'm still a major fanboy of her and, and what she's done uh, it's, and is still doing with her, you know, with being vulnerable, with her book. Um, I think she's incredible. So I'm not going to fanboy here because you're going to hear me fanboy over there. Anyway, uh, welcome to the Secret Stoners Club. And uh, I will talk to you after you hear from Katie Brown. All right. Bye.